All right, I hope you've got your Bibles open with us. We're going to read 7 through 12 today, and we're going to trust that the Holy Spirit's going to do good things with these, these verses that will be uh, proclaimed and exposited before you today. Verse 7 says again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray and ask the Lord's blessing over the word that we're going to absorb this morning. Lord God, I praise you for overstepping the boundaries that we sometimes are so want to build around our hearts. We are often offended when someone else approaches us and encourages us to change, to grow, challenges the way that we are currently living, Lord God. We, we are so proud. But Father, help us to be humble before You, Lord, that when You, with Your Word, reveal to us that in us which needs to change, that we would not recoil, that we would not be stubborn or stiff-necked, but that in any way that we see our will to differ from yours, that we would be happy to yield the way to your leadership. God, you are king. Not just in a detached, um, away from us kind of way. You are the king of each individual who has put faith and trust in you. And we are grateful to follow you. So I pray, Lord God, that you would humble us today, that you would help us to receive this word with gladness that we would rejoice in the fact that though we are imperfect, that you love us still, and that the sanctifying power of your Holy Spirit can make us more like Christ. So I praise you for all the things that you will teach us today. Let it not just be a head knowledge that we receive, God, but may it impact the way that we live our lives out in joyful obedience to the King who saved us. And we pray this all in the magnificent name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 7 begins, my friends, and says, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. When you're studying through the book of Ecclesiastes and you come across that structure of, again, you can know that the preacher of Ecclesiastes is about to give you further evidence that this hypothetical life, this life lived under the sun, as it is called in Ecclesiastes, this life lived independent from God, lived under the power of man's own understanding and conviction is vanity, is meaningless. And so one of the typical side effects of trying to live independently of the Lord is that not only do we pull away from our Creator, but we often pull away from other people as well. In, verse, in the six verses that we're going to be studying today, Solomon will show us how isolation speaks to the meaninglessness of life under the sun. Verse 8 tells us about a man in a sad situation though he doesn't seem to realize the sadness of it. He is said to have neither son nor brother. 
Now notice, these two types of relationships are familial relationships, but they don't specifically speak to marriage per se. This passage is going to address the importance of fellowship and community in general. So it's not focusing in on the very unique relationship of covenant marriage, which is important to the Lord God. But that's not the real focus of what we're talking about here. And that's kind of interesting, considering that Solomon, in many ways, had a train wreck of of a married life. He had so many wives and so many concubines uh, that it's interesting here that he instead chooses to focus on our familial relationships, those relationships of connection uh, outside of the, uh, the marriage covenant. The relationships that are being identified here in Ecclesiastes are are relationships of brotherly love. As the New Testament writer might use the word phileo to describe them, these are relationships friend to friend, neighbor to neighbor, brother to brother, father to son. What might cause a a person, like the man we read about in verse 8, what might cause him to be alone? There are times in life when circumstances that are beyond our control can damage our relationships and isolate us. When, when you lose, for instance, someone who is dear to you, death can take away relationships that we highly value and leave us feeling lonely, leave us feeling isolated and, and, and distant. When you have to move to a new area because perhaps there's a financial hardship or maybe you get transferred in your job and in order to continue supporting your family, you've got to go where the employment is. That can cause a severing of relationships. Not that being distant from somebody means we can't continue a relationship with them, but day-to-day interactions, regular face-to-face interactions are important to fostering strong relationships. Or for others, it's just the fact of when we grow older and we begin to see the effects of the fall, the, the death that is a reality for all of us begin to take its toll. And we, we look around and the people that we've been so close to throughout our lives, several of them have passed away and that community that we used to value so greatly it is no longer what it used to be. Circumstances can peel away many of the great connections that we have with people, much of our brotherly love, and can result in isolation. But this is not why the man in verse 8 is alone, is it? His isolation is the result of his own choices. Sometimes we suffer from a lack of meaningful relationships with others because we have acted neglectfully towards the people who we should have valued and pursued. When we don't prioritize personal relationships in our lives, as we see in the example of this man, our friends and our families and our neighbors may begin to respond by drifting farther from us. Whatever might cause a person to be distant from others, the preacher's comments here in Ecclesiastes 4 help us to see that isolation is not a state that we should grow comfortable with. God did not design His people to live independently from one another. And here He will help us to see the value of striving for true community and fellowship with others. Apparently someone needed to tell that guy described in verse 8 how important relationships were. Despite the man's lack of significant friendships and connections, he doesn't bother to take the time to even consider his lonely state. He's so wrapped up in his busyness, in his activity in achieving his own personal goals, that he's ignorant to his own isolation. He's not even broken up by the fact that there is no one there to share in the joy of his accomplishments that he is striving so diligently for. This man is alone because he has set his sights 
on something other than loving relationships. He has chosen things and goals over family and friends, over community and togetherness. Ambition is a double-edged sword, isn't it? You know, God is not glorified when we slothfully slug through life and, and don't think about ways that we can apply our skills and our talent and our time to grow and to advance and to do more. We talked a little bit a week ago about sloth and how that's not glorifying to the Lord God. Folded hands that produce nothing for the kingdom are not profitable to the Christian. But that same ambition that causes us to go and to do more can also cause us to run right past the people that we should be dwelling with in loving connection. Greed and desire for security and happiness through possessions can be a powerful isolator as well. Greed seeks the advantage for oneself. Whereas true love is willing to put the interests and well-beings of others before the self. God gives us resources to meet our needs, to facilitate community between people. But it doesn't take long for us to do the math and see that when I'm not spending my money on others, there's a lot more of it for me to spend on me. And so the greedy heart of man has this tendency to isolate so that resources can be spent on the self instead of shared with those who are loved. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants us to understand that this self-centered way of living is a bad thing. The wisdom that Solomon shares with us in these verses reveal that isolation is a condition that is not pleasing to our God, and it is destructive to the man that he loves. This is not to say that it is a sin to be by yourself from time to time. If you're an introvert, you're probably sweating a little bit right now about where this sermon is going. We see several examples in Scripture where people were alone for a time and it was good for them, right? The prophet Daniel was known. Though he had friends and community, though he served and was engaged, even in the secular community that he lived in, he sought to build relationships. But regularly, he would divide himself from the worries of the world. He would go out onto his balcony, he would open up the doors, and he would pray to the Lord his God. He would be alone with the one that he loved the best. We read of the prophet Jeremiah, who is often called the lonely prophet because for so many years he ministered to the people of Israel, but they rejected the words of God that came through him. But even Jeremiah saw the benefit of being alone. In Lamentations 3, 25-28, he writes, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. So we see there that even at a young age, it is good for us to be reflective and introspective and to spend time just with our thoughts, thinking about the Lord God and, and trying to understand our connection to Him. Those who are familiar with Jesus' earthly ministry know that he would regularly detach himself from the crowds and make time to seek the Lord on his own. Luke 5.12, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So being alone is not in and of itself a sin. You are not an inferior Christian if you're introverted and tend away from the crowd. We're not commanded to spend every waking moment with other people, but even if you are more naturally withdrawn even if you would rather consider yourself an introvert and your default impulse is to shy away from personal interactions rather than pursuing them, 
God does not intend for isolation to be your primary mode of existence. You might say, but isn't it my prerogative to live my life as I desire? Don't I have a basic human right to choose to voluntarily live if I want to with a narrow bandwidth, keeping personal interactions to a minimum, if that's more comfortable to me, if I am anxious about crowds, if it's hard for me to, to interact, if people don't always understand me, maybe my communication skills aren't that great, don't I have the freedom to choose to be on my own? In the mid-fourth century, many firm believers found that the world was so corrupt around them that they preferred to be by themselves. And so we had the, the birth of the monastic movement where Godly men would go off into the wilderness and live isolated lives hoping to seek simply after the things of the Lord God. Godly women would try to escape from the temptations of the world by committing themselves to nunnery, by being set apart and forsaking familial life. And though the intentions of some of those individuals was good, so much more could have been done through them had they refused that impulse for isolation and instead engaged in the communities that God had planted them in. Can I isolate myself from others and still seek to glorify God? According to the testimony of His perfect word, no, I cannot. If I have given my life over to Jesus, then I don't belong to myself anymore. What He wants for me is more important now than what I want for me. And He wants for me fellowship and relationship with others. This is a radical thought, this idea that God has the right to just tell us what is good for us and expect us to do it. But it is a thought that cannot be overlooked if you're serious about your faith. Some people have this idea that if God loves me, then He would never ask me to do what I don't want to do, what makes me uncomfortable. But that is patently wrong. Because God loves you, He will decide what you need and what you ought to want, even if it conflicts with what is natural and what comes easy to you. He knows your heart much better than you do. And as your faithful Father, He knows what you need. To follow Christ is to die to self, to put an end to the notion that your life is your own personal kingdom and you get to be the king over that personal kingdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19-20, through 20, the Apostle Paul says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And everyone loves to hear that. They like to think of themselves as this sanctified and pure temple where the powerful Spirit of God dwells within. But then he goes on to say, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This verse is not just an encouragement to us so that we'll think better about ourselves, so that we'll have a boosted self-esteem, but rather it is to remind us that now that the Spirit dwells within us, that Spirit needs to have dominion over us, that we cannot afford to pretend as though this is our temple anymore. This is the temple of the Spirit, and God has every right over the things that occur in these bodies. You were bought at a price, Christian. Now that you are God's, you are to live in a way that His glory is paramount. It trumps even your own desires. Recall the picture of the, the Garden of Eden for a moment, friends. When we're thinking about the value and importance of interpersonal relationships, God created man, calls him Adam, 
and puts him into this idyllic place, this place where there is no sin, this place where there is no lack or want of goods. He has everything that he needs. There is great harmony and peace. Death does not reign over Adam. This is an, a very unique environment for man to experience. And yet we see even in the first chapter of Genesis that seeing Adam there, naming the animals and observing how each animal had its pair, had its other, that the fact that Adam was isolated, isolated was described as what? As not good. Everything that God made when he spoke it into existence was declared good, good, very good until the isolation of Adam comes into view. God wanted for Adam fellowship and community. He desired for him not to be alone, but to have other people around him. Isolation is not what God wants for his people. So even if I can't stomach being around others, if, I'm a, if I am Christ, I better get used to crowds. I better remember that the second greatest commandment, the one that tells me that I should love my neighbor even as I love myself, is described as being very much like the first commandment, which is to love the Lord my God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that all of the law of God hinges on these two. Surely there are times when it is okay for us to be by ourselves, but isolation, this general trend towards living for the self, living independently of others, of the help and of allegiance of other people, this is vanity. It is just another expression of the broken compulsion that we have inherited from our father Adam, this sin nature which plagues all of mankind. The compulsion to be like God, what Satan tempted Adam and Eve with in Genesis 3-5, to be sovereign over our own domain, to have, one, have no one to answer to and no one to tell us no, this is contrary to the joy that God has designed for us. So returning to this man that Solomon describes in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, verse 8. Despite his isolation, there is no end to all his toil. He doesn't notice how much he's missing, so he just keeps on pressing. He just keeps on missing it and is content to live in this loop of dissatisfaction, constantly pressing for more, but never being filled. This aimless striving is described as an unhappy business. Literally, it means an evil task to just continue to live life on your own, thinking that you can meet your own needs apart from God is a very unhappy business indeed. If you are living primarily for yourself, you are preoccupying yourself with activity that you may not realize it, but activity that is robbing you of the joy that God has for you. God doesn't want you stuck in that revolving door of loneliness and dissatisfaction. So amidst the vanity of life, the preacher pauses to help us see the value of living in fellowship with other people. So remember the main point of this book. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon is on a quest for answers to life's fundamental questions. But along the way, short of finding those ultimate answers, Solomon accumulates experience, he gains wisdom, and so he makes observations that point out how life is supposed to look to us. At times, he's going to pause his quest for the answer to life in order to give his reader practical direction and useful, wise comparatives. In other words, he's going to show us, I don't have the full answer yet. We get that in chapter 12, remember? I don't have the full answer yet, but I can see that this is better than this. So whatever the real answer is, I should gravitate towards this 
instead of seeking this. Verses 9 through 12 break down into four practical reasons why two are better than one. The first reason he gives us is in verse 9. Fellowship with others leads to greater productivity. Two are better than one. Why? Because they have a good reward for their toil. Now this is not to say that one acting by himself cannot produce anything of value, but there are many instances in life when having only one is detrimental to productivity and to happiness. When two team up to tackle a task, there's great advantage there. There's greater diversity in abilities and in experience. When you have a team where everybody went to the same school and everybody had the same major, you're not going to have as many ideas. You're not going to have as many nuances to what people have learned, not as much experience to add to the task. So when we have a team that's made up of different people with different backgrounds and different training, then we have more skills to bring to the table. We have a better opportunity of finding one among us that can meet the need of the situation. There are two sets of mind, minds working to solve the same problem. One person on their own may suffer from tunnel vision, unable to see past the biases of their own experience. But when two or more are involved, there is a greater diversity in perspective. Right? As iron sharp, sharpens iron, so one man can sharpen another. So our differing views on things might make us sharper, might cause us both to grow. That can also uh, complicate things a little bit if you've ever been on a committee. So uh, just a little disclaimer there. If you're working with too many people, sometimes it can get a little, a little messy. But this diversity in teamwork can really strengthen us and give us the tools we need to complete what needs to be completed. When two are working together, there is much more accountability and motivation. There's been a great trend in, uh, in our nation, especially on this west coast of ours, of working from home. And that has been a huge blessing for those who used to have to wrestle against commutes, who used to have to be away from their families and waste all that time and transition. But those of you who work at home probably have felt the strain and the stress of trying to stay motivated. It is not always easy to work hard when there are others around you who are not doing what you are trying to do. When we work side by side, then I see my brother do well, and I want to do well like my brother. I want to complement what he is doing. Our mutual effort towards one goal can create great motivation and can help us to work harder and stay on task. Also, when there are two instead of one, there is greater sense of joy when the success of a job accomplished can be shared. When we win together, then we can experience that as a team. And, and my joy multiplies your joy, and likewise yours increases mine. Not only that, but sometimes work can be just plain exhausting. It can be challenging. And in order to avoid failure, in order to avoid fatigue and burnout, sometimes it's not only an option to have teammates, sometimes it's a necessity to work with others. For every high-profile figure who does their job brilliantly, there are always a, a number of people behind the scenes that are there to support that individual, to help them forward, to be a, a support to them in their work, and to make them be able to maximize the skills that God has given to them. Think about that. When you listen to the radio, there's one very big personality there who's broadcasting over the airwaves, but that personality has an engineer. That personality probably has a research team. There are individuals helping that person to do what they are good at doing. Very, very rarely do you see one person who can top to bottom 
do a task by himself and do it well. Notice the way that God so often designs leadership positions in his church, for example. And before the church, in the nation of Israel, Moses was very nervous about leading God's people out of slavery. God had called him to go and confront Pharaoh and to declare that God wanted his people to be free, to go into the wilderness and to worship him the way they were supposed to. And yet Moses was very nervous about that. He claimed that he could not speak. He, he didn't have the skills necessary. So God commissions his brother Aaron to stand by his side as a mouthpiece to help him in public speaking, to help him with public relations. And they would work as a team for many years together. Also notice how Joshua, young protege to Moses, becomes an assistant to him and they work side by side in delivering the law to the people. There was great camaraderie between them and great support as they worked towards God's ends. When Jesus sends out his 12 disciples in Matthew chapter 10 to go and speak the gospel in the remote village areas of Judea. He doesn't send them out one by one. He sends them out two by two. He wants them to have fellowship in work so that they might be more productive, so that there might be this great accountability, so that the, the, the witness of two might stand firmer than the witness of one. And then in the New Testament church, a, a plural team of elders is the consistent New Testament model for church leadership. We see it in the book of Acts. We see it in the book of Ephesians. We see it in the pastoral letters. The Lord God desires for us to work together to accomplish the things that he has called his church to be about. We even see that God himself, the triune being that he is, has a teamwork within his own being. One God in three persons, co-equals, existing eternally with one mind and one desire. Though different in role, though different in person, they work in a perfectly united way to, to make what, hap- what needs to happen, happen. And there is great joy in that fellowship. God wants us to know what it's like to have community because he has always known it and always rejoiced in it. So fellowship with others leads to greater productivity. It also leads to greater support. Verse 10 goes on to say, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. We are, every one of us, weak. There are limits to what we can accomplish as mortal human beings. When our weakness gets the best of us and we fail, who is going to be there to lift us up? We've seen some wonderful examples in Scripture of people who were there for one another through extremely trying times, through difficult circumstances. Remember how David, the anointed of God, while Saul was still on the throne became the object of Saul's wrath. This man who was supposed to lead Israel as king, but because of his desire to please people, did not do the will of God right, and and therefore was destined to lose his throne, became very angry and spiraled out of control, became less and less mentally stable, and the, the fury that he had towards his own failure was directed towards David. Who was there to help David through those trials? Who was there to look after him? Was it not Jonathan, the son of Saul, who was a great companion to David, who was a confidant, who would alert him when there was danger that David did not yet see? This man was a friend who sticks closer than a brother to David and was instrumental in helping David stay out of harm's way and avoid the wrath of Saul. We can think about the book of of Ruth, 
where this godly woman Naomi loses her husband and then both of her sons and is destitute. She sends her daughter-in-laws away back to the land of Moab where they had come from, releasing from them from their familial obligations and one goes, but, but Ruth decides to stay with her mother-in-law and there's a great friendship there as she travels with her and declares, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. Whatever happens to us will happen to us together. And though Naomi in her disparity became known as Mara, which means bitter, because she was so distraught at her losses, Ruth pointed her towards the Lord. This woman who was a convert was able to encourage her and help her to not lose faith in the one who reigns over us sovereignly. We see it in Barnabas and John Mark. John Mark who did fall. John Mark who went on the first mission trip with Barnabas and Paul but was for whatever reason, we don't know the details, not able to stick it out. He left early. He abandoned the mission. And when the second great mission began, the Apostle Paul did not want to go on mission with John Mark because he was one who had fallen. He was one who had not shown himself to be faithful and yet Barnabas stood by the side of John Mark and went on mission with him. And the gospel spread even farther than it would have if it was just Barnabas and Paul preaching the gospel. And then later on, in Paul's own ministry, if you read in the second letter to Timothy, which is probably the last correspondence we have from the Apostle Paul, this little side note in verse, 12, uh, verse 11 of chapter 4, where Paul says, Send to me John Mark, for he is beneficial to me. Paul was a great and mighty man, but he too needed fellowship from the saints. He too needed support. Who do you look for to support when the burden is too hard for you? Of course, Christ should be the first person you look to. Even if we do find ourselves isolated by the circumstances of life, even if our efforts to build community fall flat, if you have Christ, you have fellowship. You are not fully alone. And our first and primary support should come from the Son of God who has redefined us and walks every step of life by our side. But part of how Christ supports us is through this brotherly love that we can enjoy as part of His family. Who can you praise God for? Who stands beside you and has taken the time to reach out to you when you were struggling? They didn't know exactly how you felt in your low moment, but they did what they could to feel compassion for you as we spoke about a week ago, to identify the best they could what you were going through because they cared about you. And what you're going through right now is important to them because it's important to you. Write that person's name down. And this week, in your personal quiet times with the Lord, I urge you to praise God for the fellowship that God has given to you through that person. Fellowship gives us support. Thirdly, fellowship with others leads to greater comfort for us. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now, there's nothing weird about this. I remember reading this as a teenager and like starting to sort of shuffle around in my seat a little bit. Um, this is a cultural reality for the Jewish people. In fact, many have pointed out that this whole section in Ecclesiastes might be framed around the very common idea of travel that would have been very familiar to most any citizen of early Israel. Remember, they had a tabernacle that was centered to their national identity. That tabernacle would travel around, but it was considered to be the presence of God among them. And later on, when the kings came and a temple was established through Solomon, that became the spiritual locus of worship. So if you were a part of Naphtali or Ephraim or one of the other tribes that was remote from 
the area of Judah, you would travel occasionally to come and worship the Lord your God in that temple. And so it's very possible here that we have shadows of this travel finding itself in these verses that we are studying right now. When one falls, another is there to pick them up. <clears throat> Could be in reference to those who fell into a pit and traveled. Perhaps their cart went into a ditch and they were stuck and they needed help getting out. You often had to sleep on the road. <coughs> if your journey was more than one day and you couldn't make it to a town where you would find hospita hospitality from another Jewish person, you might have to just huddle up. And if it wasn't for the body warmth of your traveling companions, it would be a very cold and lonely night. When it speaks in a moment about protection, it might be talking about those who are traveling on the road who are want to be attacked by robbers or bandits. So two traveling together are more secure than one, such as the great Samaritan, who is a sitting duck, an easy target for a bandit who would try to rob them on the road. So this isn't weirdness here at all. This is simply talking about the cultural realities that the Jewish people had to deal with. Physical comfort is clearly in view here, but we can also consider the emotional component, can't we? It is comforting just knowing that someone is near to you, that they care enough to walk alongside however, the, however rough the road becomes. You know, there is a reason why those who are in prison, those inmates who have had so many of their rights stripped away, when they don't toe the line, when they are breaking the policies and the boundaries that are set by the prison guards, how are they punished? How do you take away from somebody who has already had most everything taken away? You put them into solitary confinement. You remove from them that human element of comfort. Even though those men are in chains next to other people who are probably pretty hard-hearted, probably pretty hostile, people even uh, who are prone to break the law need companionship and fellowship. And so that isolation is detrimental to us. Do not put yourself into solitary confinement and by doing, remove the blessing of comfort that God has destined for you. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 24 through 26. But God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So the warmth of the prayers of your brothers and sisters can be a great comfort to you, can't it? When you are going through difficult times. You might call a brother or sister in Christ and pour your heart out to them and they might not be able to give you some solution to your problem. They might not be able to give you wisdom that will help you to work your way out of whatever hardship you're going through. But just the very act of being with them, of knowing that they are lifting your needs up before the Savior is a comfort to the heart and makes it more easy to walk through whatever trials God has designed for us. Fourthly, fellowship with others leads to greater security for us. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. All of us, as we have said already, are weak, but we can all find one stronger than ourselves. And when we unite together, what little strength we have becomes more formidable, doesn't it? When threat comes, my effort might not be enough to keep me secure, but the strength of another added to mine can turn the tables and give me ample power 
to overcome my adversary. One of my kids is uh, deathly afraid of bees. And I won't tell you which one, but if you go out and hang out in the park for any length of time, you'll probably notice the screaming and the running away whenever he sees anything that flies. Because anything that flies is a bee when you're afraid of bees, right? And when you think about that, it's not a lot of logic to it. Unless, of course, you're allergic to bees. If you are, that just ruins my whole illustration. But um, <laughs> run with me here. If you're not allergic to bees, you know, we often get so scared of this little tiny thing that's just a fraction of our size. This little tiny thing that, yes, they can sting us, but what's the worst it can do? It's a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of swelling, soreness. If you're not allergic to bees, though, it's going to go away. It's a little illogical for us to, to run screaming with our hands in the air just because a bee is around us, because there's not much they can really do to you. But, multiply that bee by a couple of hundreds, what can a swarm of bees do? A swarm of bees can take down a cow, believe it or not. The multiplication of that toxin, the multiplication of the, the small pain, but amplified over the group, can be very, very dangerous. A swarm of bees is a true problem. When one little thing that isn't much of a danger to us gathers together, then their strength is multiplied and suddenly they are a force to be reckoned with. Not that Christians should roam around the countryside in packs like angry bees, right? <laughs> but it is comforting to know that whatever life would throw at us, we are more secure against it when we have our brothers and sisters standing by our side. When people whose whole lives have been redefined around one immutable person, Jesus, that affords them the uni unique opportunity to be unified one to another in very significant ways, in ways that increase our productivity, in ways that help us to support one another, in ways that are comforting to our hearts, in ways that give us greater security in this hostile world that is so opposed to the things of God. How the Holy Spirit unites God's church is He does it through having each one of us individually come alive. He, he wakes us up to the things of God. We end up trusting Christ because of God's stirring of our hearts. And then He gives us a new identity by placing His Spirit inside of our hearts. And that Spirit that you have, believer, is the same Spirit that is in everyone who is called on the name of Jesus Christ. The core truth of your new identity is the same foundation that is given to every believer. So we have something in common that is so much more than just a hobby or an interest. So it's so much more than even just a belief. It is the supernatural presence of the living God that dwells with every believer. While each child of God is undoubtedly unique, their shared foundation of biblical truth gives them a common amen that impacts every aspect of who they are. Our relationship to God, which is primary to us, I hope, powerfully affects the secondary relationships in our lives that we can develop. The man in verse 8 worked for no one but himself. He never took the time to stop and ask why. What's the point of all this striving? Who am I going to enjoy the blessings of this labor with? Let us be willing to ask that question that he failed to ask. Why? Why am I working so hard in this life of mine? Why am I constantly so busy? Why do I feel compelled to fill my schedule with everything I possibly can cram in? And in light of the knowledge of Christ that has been revealed to us, how does this striving affect what should be important to me? How does this impact my most important relationships? 
friends, our constant toil can interfere with the vertical relationship that we are called to have with Jesus Christ. Your busyness, even if it is involvement in godly things, can sometimes hinder your nearness to the Lord God if you are not careful to pursue Him in a personal way. And of course, our secondary relationships can suffer as well. How do my strivings detract or contribute to what matters most, to the God that I love and the people that should be close to me? If my work has caused me to be an island, to isolate and sever any but the most utilitarian of connections with other people, then what needs to be done today to repair those things? Or what needs to be done if I don't have relationships like that? What do I need to do in humility to begin to build those things up? If you have no connections, I want to encourage you to look around you in this room today and consider the great mercies of the Lord Almighty who has drawn a church to Himself for His glory, yes, but also for our blessing and our good. Start here. If you feel isolated and you don't have real meaningful relationships, then find someone else in this body of Christ that you might come to know. Invite them to your home. Offer to help them with their lives. Pray alongside them. Begin to listen and get to know them and allow them to see what is going on in your life. Pray with your brothers and sisters and seek this kind of family. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, where Jesus is preaching. And there's a great multitude there that is gathered in that big home to hear him speak. And at some point or another, Mary and one or some of Jesus' brothers come to the door And they're asking for Jesus. They need to speak to him. And someone pushes their way up to the front and they talk to Jesus and they tell him that, hey, your mother and your brother is here. Look at verse 19. It says, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But Jesus answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. We are not First Family Church by accident. That name has a significant meaning. It is tied to one of the primary foundational metaphors that God uses to help us understand what the church is supposed to be. So if you feel right now like you have worked your way out into an island, you have made yourself unavailable to others, I urge you today to experience the great blessing and joy of drawing near, especially to those whom God has coveted you to draw near to through membership in the church? Would you see that those who are in this room are the ones that God has called you to love? He's called you to protect them, to serve them, to pray for them. Would you see that? And then would you realize also that others in this room have been called through the same for you? God does not desire our, our isolation. He desires to be connected to us personally and then through that connection to experience the joy of eternal family in His church. Let's pray and ask Him to help us as we pursue that together. God, we thank You for the joy of being near to You, Lord God. And I pray, Father, that though it may be easier for us, especially in this digital age where there is so much information at our fingertips and we play as though we are connected because we have these apps and these websites that we can go to 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 interact with each other in a very limited social way. But, Father, I fear that people are more isolated than ever. People are more lonely than they've ever been despite this electronic guise of connection. Father, you desire us to be near to one another like brothers and sisters. And so I pray that you would build those relationships of brotherly love. Father, help us 
of course, to never neglect our relationship with you and to know that if that relationship is out of step, if we are not pursuing you the way that we ought to, then we cannot expect our relationships with others to be in order. So as we transition to this time of communion, God, we pray that you would help us to rejoice in the most important of all relationship connections that a human being can experience. The relationship that we have with you because you have called us to join you at your table. We praise you and thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.